Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you under the Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. As many of you know, Monday and Tuesday here on Seeds of Truth is, has been about the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 12 and we will continue our reflections into chapter 12. Wednesday is about the world's stage, right, where Father Mike Ritter joins me each and every Wednesday to reflect into a movie at your request, typically, to see where we might see Christ in a particular movie, and if not Christ, allegorically speaking, maybe something to discover about ourselves and who we are as we watch the screen. Uh, this Wednesday, we are going to take up the movie The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and I know <laughs> we were supposed to take up that movie last week, but uh, some things had come up and we weren't able to get into into the studio, so... I apologize for that, but uh, be assured, uh, this Wednesday we will take up The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and after this week we do have a series of movies that we have planned. Father Mike and I sat down and we talked about really five, six weeks out what movies we're going to treat. Some of these movies are actually movies that are in the movie theater right now because of your request, so we'll talk more about that uh, on Wednesday. And of course, Thursday is special topic Thursday, an evening that is devoted to your questions. Last Thursday, I took up a number of your questions about Lent. For this Thursday, I will go into my queue and, and see what's there, and uh, I will let you know before Thursday. All right, all of that being said, as I noted, we are in the book of Genesis, and we have been in the book of Genesis for a couple of months now, right? And really maybe, gosh, up to three months we have been at it for uh, quite some time now, and and I know some of you might be thinking right now, you're only in Genesis 12? Well, yeah, we're, we're only in Genesis 12 because there are many life-giving passages in this narrative. We hit the pause button where we have needed to hit the pause button at certain verses as they afford us the opportunity to really go deeper in our faith. And this has been the case with Genesis chapter 12. I mean... <laughs> It has been very difficult for us just to get out of those initial verses, and part of the reason why is because I have taken, I have used these opening verses in chapter 12 to really explain just not the narrative of salvation history and its covenant theme, but also because in these opening verses you have a real palpable encounter going on between God and Abram. If you were to, I suppose, ask the questions today, I mean, why are the faith and religious practices in decline and do not seem to constitute, at least for the majority, the point of reference in life? I mean, why the tedium, the exhaustion, the, the bother in fulfilling one's duties as believers? Why are so many young people not attracted to God? Why is there, in a word, such dejection and a lack of joy among believers in Christ. Well, among other things, my friends, 
there is a clear absence of real faith and relationship with God, which ultimately means there is this absence of encountering God. Huh? In the first four verses of Genesis 12, there is an obvious encounter with God. And what's more, we know by his response, that is Abram's response to this encounter, that we read in verse 4, and Abram went as he was told, that he what? Listened to him. Listened to him. Now, to use the word listen here, for a deeper sense of what might be going on here, I wanted to turn our attention to, I think, a reading that uh, we all heard this past Sunday, right? The second Sunday of Lent in the Transfiguration. I'm not going to do some long commentary on the Transfiguration right now, but I do want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. Lo, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I take my delight. Listen to him. Listen to him. Again, lo, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, in whom I delight. Listen to him. As the great biblical theologian uh, Mary Caucus reflects, For the Father, his proud affirmation that Jesus is his son is inseparable from the pleasure and the delight the Father takes in his son. So when he adds, Listen to him. Surely a great deal more is meant by the Father than simply learn his teaching or obey his commandment. I believe that's such an important truth. He goes on to say, rather, the injunction takes us in the direction of ultimate interpersonal delight. I love that. Ultimate interpersonal delight. When you look at the word delight and pleasure as we see it in these in these verses here we ought to be mindful that this is a word that often occurs in connection with relation between what but the father and the son true pleasure true delight true joy only comes in relation to another in the transfiguration what is going on here of course is between god the father and his son jesus christ it is as if the Father were saying in this verse, if you abide with him and listen to him in the same way as he and I always perpetually and perfectly abide with and listen to each other, then and only then you will experience the same divine delight within your beings that is the very substance of our life that is God. In recent weeks, I have noted, if not recent months, the figure of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, who I have personally been spending a lot of time with. She is St. Elizabeth of the Trinity because she has written a lot on the Trinity, and she writes a lot on the divine indwelling, and how we are called to allow God to take permanent residence in our souls, that our souls are like a heaven, if you will where we encounter God in the interior life. My dear friends, to encounter God is to encounter love itself. Huh? I mean, if we want things to change for us, like that of Abram and so many of the great figures throughout sacred scripture, it really is about falling in love with God. 
And if you were to extend this by way of analogy, we could say in a similar way that maybe a young man or woman fall in love, right? You see, in love, the other, who before was just one of many, or perhaps even unknown, is all of a sudden the only one, right? The only one in the whole world that you are interested in, to that deep degree, huh? Everything else just kind of recedes and becomes part of this pale background. One cannot think of anything else. Sticking with the the theme of the transfiguration, there is a real transfiguration, so to speak. When everything about that person seems beautiful, even the beloved's defects, one might even feel unworthy of the person loved. True love always generates humility. Specifically, true love changes to a degree even one's life's habits. I mean, we have all known young men whose parents couldn't get them out of bed in the morning to go to school, right? If a job was found for them, they soon abandoned it. Or they were careless in their studies, never getting their degree. Then, suddenly, they fell in love. They fell in love with someone and got engaged. And wouldn't you know, they were now jumping out of bed in the morning, right? What happened? Nothing, right? Simply that what before they did by constriction, now they do by attraction, huh? Attraction. And attraction, my friends, as you know, is capable of doing things that no constriction achieves. As the great Father Canto de Mesa, the, the great Franciscan, muses on this point, attraction, by its very nature, gives wings to one's feet. I love that by Canto de Mesa. So, brothers and sisters, something like this should happen once in a lifetime to be true Christians, right? Convicted and joyful Christians. Because while we are in Lent, for the sake of this reflection, we know that He is risen and is alive. He is a concrete being. He is not an abstraction. More than that, with Jesus, things always go better. In human falling in love, there is what we could call artificial, attributing to the beloved talents that perhaps that person doesn't even have. And often in time, (laughs) one is obliged to change one's opinion. In Jesus' case, the more one comes to know him, and the more one is just simply with him, the more reasons are discovered to be just not proud of him, and maybe confirmed in one's choice to, to love him. But that what is before us, the choice, ultimately in the end, is the greatest choice we ever made. The choice. Life is but a series of choices that we make. And to make choices in lieu of encountering Jesus, in lieu of of having a real relationship with Jesus, encountering God each and every day is transformative. Transformative and consequently life-giving. Not just for you, but for everyone else. Remember what we have said about Abram. We were talking about how Abram's whole existence is about this dynamic of moving forward, never looking back. And as it was, he brought blessings 
wherever he went. And so it is. <laughs> we say went because this is what Abram did. After he had this very real encounter with God, he went. We read in verse 4 and following, So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had gathered, and the persons that they had gotten in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. So here again, we continue to have this uh, manifestation of God and God encountering Abram. And he said to Abram, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Thence he removed to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east, I as in Ai. <laughs> and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb. Okay, so there in verses 4 to 9, on the heels of our reflection about the importance of encountering God, we have more verses to reflect with that really have us continuing to go back to that all-important principle of relationship, right? I will give the land. It's interesting here, this is the first time that Canaan is designated as the promised land intended for the family of Abraham. Okay, so that's certainly uh, quite important. How about this phrase, built there an altar? Built there an altar? So here, what we ought to be mindful of is that Abram not only surveys the land of Canaan, he sanctifies it as a place of worship, huh? By erecting altars in, in Shechem, in, in Bethel. So in addition to building altars, which clearly implies what but the practice of ritual sacrifice, patriarchal religion also includes tithing, libations, and calling upon the name of the Lord in prayer. So what we are to see here is that the patriarchs themselves very much performed acts of public worship and served as priests over their families. And Abram was the great priest overseeing uh, his tribe, his clan. Now, I want to pause here with the importance of altar and really the importance of sacrifice. If you were to dig deeper, the word sacrifice is really what lies at the heart of the whole Bible, okay? Because when you start to get into the Old Covenant and New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament, what are you talking about? Well, how you enter into relationship with God by way of the covenant. And how do you do that? Well, by way of sacrifice. Now here what you have is Abram building an altar and offering up these libations to God. 
And he's doing so in what? Thanksgiving, which is, of course, a beautiful prefigurement of the Eucharist itself, which literally means thanksgiving or to give thanks, or as we've also uh, probed into that Greek Eucharistia, a thanksgiving that is full of grace, right? Because the Greek word there, charis, grace, full of grace, plentitude of grace. Uh, this is what you have in the New Testament, which is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament sacrifice. And it's more than just these external rituals, because when you are sacrificing something, you are also at the same time offering yourself up to God. It's just not the animal. You are entering into this worship by offering your whole being to God. Everything that I do, I do for you. You're very intentional about your offering. And an offering is an important word as well, because what we offer lies at the heart of our own faith, does it not? Brothers and sisters, whatever it is that you do for a living, you have some form of altar. And I'm not necessarily talking here about like pagan idolatry. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about, in principle, the idea that if you're an accountant and you are sitting at a computer desk, well, then that desk is your altar and the computer is your offering insofar as your work gives glory to God. Maybe you're a mechanic and you're, you're working on the engine of a car. That car is your altar. That engine is your offering insofar as you work on that engine for the glory of God. Whatever it is that you do each and every day, you will find yourself at some form of altar. And at that altar, you will have an opportunity to offer that to God. I'm here in this studio right now sitting uh, at a desk, right, with a microphone and a board before me with all these buttons and, and uh, knobs. This board is my offering to God. By the grace of God go I. Right? The desk that I sit at, the computers around me that are recording this program so it can upload and become an iTunes podcast, all of this is part of my offering to God. This is what God wants us to see. And this is why we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that our lives are to become a spiritual worship, a what? What does Paul say? A holy and acceptable offering to God. That's Paul a holy and acceptable offering to God. If you are a faithful listener, you've heard me talk about this. In fact, you know that if it's not Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 have probably been the most important verses to us here on Seeds of Truth. The point here is to really embrace what is going on here in chapter 12, that this is just more than some ritual sacrifice. God wants us to spend some time with this, for sure. Again, something I've noted before, what does the word sacrifice mean? Sacrum fitse, to make holy, to make holy. So all that we do, when we do it for God as an offering to God, makes us more holy. And when we encounter all of those trials and sufferings in life, when we offer those to God and we make the necessary sacrifices to do what we need to do 
to overcome those trials and sufferings, or to just bear them patiently, all of that makes us more holy. What does the word holiness mean? Well, to practice the presence of God. (laughs) Abram was a holy man because as he was building these altars, he was what? Practicing the presence of God, bringing down the presence of God. And certainly, every time Abram did this, as he did in verse 7, God rejoiced, huh? What father does not rejoice when his son does something for him, specifically gives him something that his heart desires? Every father rejoices at that. As you know, I have four kids, and any time any one of my kids does something for me, and maybe even better said, something for their siblings, I rejoice. I rejoice like like I have never rejoiced before. In point of fact, every single time my children do something for the betterment of the family, I find myself rejoicing just a little bit more. Grace upon grace, joy upon joy, love upon love. This is what builds up families. And certainly, the more Abram built altars and offered up holocaust to God, it built up his clan, his family, which ultimately, of course, would lead to the universal clan, the universal family, the universal church. All right, where were we? Abram and Sarai, my friends, to say that, why aren't you saying Abraham and Sarah? Well, remember, and we're going to get into this um, once we get into the actual verses, but just for now, remember, from Abram to Abraham, you move into this uh, more fuller understanding of Abram's vocation, that he is the father of all nations. And of course, from Sarai to Sarah, you get the same thing. This new mode of being for her, who's to become the, this, this mother of all nations. So in this name change, Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, you have an elevation of status in, in salvation history. And this is not the only time you see this, of course. Jacob's name changes to Israel, right? We see in the New Testament, Saul's name changes to Paul, uh, Simon to Peter. And with that name change comes what but an elevation of status, an elevation of status. Incidentally, my friends, and we can just close with this point as it's responding to a question. Last week, I was asked the question, Joe, why do people change their names when they become a religious? You know, many of us know people who have become religious and maybe they, their name was Matthew and now it's Brother Malachi, or their name was Terry and now it's Brother Simon, or their name is, uh, in the case of my sister, <laughs> Celia, and now it's Sister Victoria Maria. Why the name change? Because you're entering into a new mode of living. You have a new role in salvation history. And the great drama that is unfolding around us each and every day, that drama that is salvation history as it extends into our own time, when we change our name, when we enter into religious life, yeah, we take on a name change because we are taking on a new way of life. Now, does this mean that we are to disregard the old, old life and running away from a life or running away from a name? No, it doesn't mean any of that. In point of fact... In taking the name change, the whole process of doing so is continuing that 
gradual transformation, that ongoing conversion, whereby you continue to heal so as to enter deeper into uh, your new vocation, whatever that might be. So there's this element of change, and with change comes a new way of life. And we take on this new way of life, right? In every way. So in the case of a religious, and not all religious take on new names, certainly we know many religious who, who kept their name, right? But for those who choose to do so, they have good reason. So if Matthew is now Brother Malachi, he's Brother Malachi for a reason. If Terry is Brother Simon, he's Simon for a reason. If Celia is Sister Victoria Maria, she is so for a reason. Because Malachi, Simon, Sister Victoria Maria means something to that individual. In the case of my sister, her name was given to her, Sister Victoria Maria. For those of you who do not know, my sister is a Carmelite cloistered nun who has taken the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience for the sake of the church. And here we get to the heart of everything that we have been talking about this evening. Why? Because, in essence, my friends, her life is to become a what? A holocaust for the church, an offering for the church, a holy and acceptable offering to God for the church. She is a mediator, of course, in the one mediation of Christ for the sake of his church. And she can do this in those beautiful vows that she takes because in those vows she is encountering God. She is going deeper in her relationship with God. We spend some time focusing in on the encounter and relationship and falling in love this evening because I wanted us to understand, just not with Abram and all of the Old Testament figures as well as new, but each and every one of us, it is about the encounter. And as certainly Abram teaches us what that encounter brings, blessing. My sister Celia, who is now Sister Victoria Maria, has brought many blessings to my family. And she brings many blessings to my family because she encounters God each and every day in her vows. And as she does so, she becomes a holy and acceptable offering unto God. I was mentioning the name given to her. What's the significance of the name Sister Victoria Maria? Well, what does that sound like? Mary's victory. So she has a special devotion to Our Lady of the Assumption. Um, incidentally, my friends, by no coincidence, I think, the God incident, as we're talking about Sister Victoria Marie, and I mentioned the, the Transfiguration this evening, she professed her final vows on the Feast of the Transfiguration. Um, anyhow, all right, so I, I did feel like it was necessary to answer that question in lieu of what we were talking about, specifically as Abram's name changes to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. There's a reason why the, why the church does what it does. What we talk about here in the name change, it all goes back to Abram and Sarai, if you will, Abraham and Sarah. We close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.